Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I'm walking along the seafront in Margate today. Does it sound different to you to my normal recordings? It's such a different sea. It's a bigger world, a sea. It's not in an estuary mouth anymore, but of course it's on the sand too. But also when the tide comes in in Margate, and that's kind of where it is now, it comes right up against the seawall. No beach at all. I love it, actually. <laughs> always feels that bit more powerful and potent around here and every time I walk down here I recite that T.S. Eliot line on Margate Sands I can connect nothing with nothing which is honestly probably one of the lines of poetry that I've thought about the most because what does he mean when he says that is it positive or negative is he talking about feeling empty or is he talking about feeling empty (laughs) like in a glorious way it comes within the wasteland which is this poem that on the other on one hand talks about the terrible aftermath of the first world war and the dislocation that people felt and that covers a lot of what's you know, carried in the meaning of that line, doesn't it? That sense that you might feel emptied out by those experiences. And we do know that he came to Margate in order to recover from a fit of nerves during the the sort of run-up to writing the poem. But also the wasteland covers lots of the ideas from the East that he was reflecting on at the time, he was understanding more about Tantra and yoga and some of the spiritual ideas that derive from Buddhism and the Vedic texts. And so equally, in context, that line could be talking about the experience of nothingness that is spiritually meaningful and soothing and positive or maybe both at once maybe that's exactly what that whole cycle captures I love it anyway I'm just pausing so you get a little bit more wave 
There's a cormorant sitting out to sea on one of the posts that mark the height of the tide. Just watching him at the moment. So anyway, I wanted to introduce you to this week's guest, Joanne Lindbergh, who's a good friend of mine. But I've been dying to find the right time to invite her onto the podcast to talk about her book, Letters to My Weird Sisters. I'll let you listen to how we unpack it in the podcast. But I just wanted to talk about how important it is to express our weirdness and our strangeness in the world. I don't think we always get it right when we talk about people who feel like outsiders. I don't think outsiders are always seeking to be made insiders or to have everybody accepting them even or feeling the same as them. I think instead we're often asking for our outsiderishness to be acknowledged and respected, for the periphery to be integrated into our understanding of the world as a valid place to stand. Anyway, it was a great conversation and after we turned off the recording devices we carried on chatting for ages until both of us had to go and I always felt like you know I wish that I wish that like some of my best autistic girl buddies some call them we don't call ourselves that live nearer by because I kind of feel like we could talk forever about our shared experience of the world and just spark off each other anyway hope you catch a little bit of that in the podcast recording I'll see you a bit later. Joanne, welcome to the Wintering Sessions. I'm delighted to have you here. It's really good to talk to you as obviously a fellow autistic woman. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I'm excited that your book, um, Letters to My Weird Sisters, is about to come out in the US as well, because I just think it's such a landmark book, not just for autistic people to read about autism, you know, as, <laughs> we, as we love to laugh up, yeah. but really for advancing the understanding of that quality of experience across time like asserting how it's always been rather than you know as we so often hear people saying well there were no autistic children when I was (laughs) (laughs) there was just that weird kid but that was different (laughs) yeah there was just a kid we threw stones at but you know like (laughs) but also I think in the way that you assert a commonality again like through different ways of being a weird sister as you put it like a you know an outsider a different kind of a mind and it's that solidarity Mm. um, that I think is really exciting about your book because I don't feel that many people have really managed to nail that and I think you have. Oh good I'm delighted you think so because it's all about commonality, community, solidarity and sisterhood. Mm. I just think you know so much a part of the autistic experience is feeling horribly alone and isolated and that you don't have community. So I think the most important thing to do is to create and foster community and that isn't just something that you do across space, it's something that you do across time. Mm. And as I'm very clear, you don't have to diagnose people posthumously. Yes. You, you can look back and say, oh, yes, I identify with these women. They had an experience like me. They are my weird sisters. Mm. And the other thing that was very important to me, and it sort of comes in the second letter to Adelheid Block, is to include those women who would be seen uh, who are non-speaking who people who use that kind of language and I don't would call low functioning or people with intellectual disabilities because they're so often excluded from solidarity and I think that's dangerous for them and diminishing for the rest of us. Yeah and I I think more than that actually not only are they excluded and othered and their Mm. humanity diminished but also somehow they come to be used as a weapon against those of us who are 
autistic people who can kind of take part in mainstream society, they, they're used as a kind of proof that we're not real and that our needs aren't valid. Exactly. And, and I think we need to sort of have them with us and say, no, no, we're we're not the privileged autistics or the clever autistics or whatever you think we are. We're just all autistic. And our commonality comes from our shared way of perceiving and being in and experiencing the world. It's nothing to do with what you see or what you judge. Yeah. So interesting. So, Mm. well, let's talk about this word weird, first of all, and your claiming of it. What does it mean to claim being a weird sister? Why is that a useful term to to take on? Well, I think because it's non-clinical for a start. <laughs> yeah. It's a term that I've chosen. It's not autistic or uh, autistic psychopathology of childhood or whatever they used to call it or mm. Asperger syndrome or or any of that or developmental disorder. It's weird. This is what I am. And it's sort of taking back a word like queer or crip and yeah. saying I'm, we're going to own this word and use it. And it, it, like I said, it's, it's a very broad word. So you could use it to encompass any idea of neurodivergence or even things that are not seen mm. as neurodivergent. And um, you can take pride in it. And Fergus Murray, as you may have seen last couple of years, he set up Weird Pride Day. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a word we can use for ourselves. Hi, I'm a weird sister. I'm a weirdo. Me too. Because mm, it is, it's a word that like I feel like has so often been used against me and I've overheard it or caught the kind of the feel of it. Mm. And I, it's one of those, those kind of states of being that as I've got older, I've been really glad to have, like, because I don't want to be the thing that is not weird. Like that has got no appeal to me at all. And so therefore maybe weird is actually a really luxurious space to inhabit. Yes. Yes, it gives you room to be different mm. and not to be easily definable because it, it is a word that doesn't have a clear definition. And I kind of rejoice in that. Yeah. And I and actually, I mean, thinking about the first addressee of one of your letters, Virginia Woolf, it kind of captures the state of those clever girls who should know better, who should be able to fit in better. Mm but somehow don't. And people wonder why. Is that like a lack of will? Is that a deliberate standing at the sidelines? There's something in there for me. Yes. And there's, I was thinking just now about um, medicine in general, actually, and how the way it's taught is here's a problem you can solve. And when someone comes with some rumbling chronic condition or some vague difference, it isn't a problem you can solve. And how do you feel towards problems you can't solve? You feel resentment. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the interview I did with um, Megan O'Rourke talking about kind of undiagnosable chronic illness that Mm. nevertheless like affected every aspect of her life. You know, she said exactly the same thing that her her mainstream doctors wanted to be able to solve the problem. And when they couldn't, she became uninteresting to them because Mm. they, they didn't have like a a modality for for working through a problem that they couldn't find a, a sort of straightforward solution to. Yes, I've been uninteresting to doctors and uninteresting <laughs> psychologists as well in my time. <laughs> yes, yeah, the, yeah, psychologists in particular, actually. Like, the, yeah, but I think the the Virginia Woolf experience, that sense of exasperation around you, which you probably feel were familiar with as well like Mm. you're such a clever girl there's nothing apparently wrong with you why can't you just go out and be like everyone else and enjoy yourself (laughs) like everyone else and then you won't be a perplexity to us and we won't worry that your life won't be the same shape as everyone else's which is what we think it should be yeah and why don't you want this I, I think that's the that's the the phrase that I heard so often. Not I didn't hear it directly, but that's what I received. Like, why mm. don't you want this thing enough that we want you to want? Exactly. Yeah. So tell us, tell us about Virginia Woolf's weird sisterhood because it, it seems to me that so many people are really captivated by her. Not necessarily even her writing, but but her and her life. Well, she 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 was a very singular person, and some of that was intentional. But I think some of that she just couldn't help. Mm. Um, and the Virginia Woolf I talk about is the one she talks about in her autobiographical writings that were written late in her life, but were about her life when she was Virginia Stephen before mm. she became Virginia Woolf, both literally and figuratively. And her mother died, her sister died, and she and her 
uh, half-sister and she and Vanessa were left in the house with three men, with their father and and their two half-brothers, George and Gerald Duckworth. And um, George was very desperate to sort of make a figure in society. And obviously the assets you have for that are your beautiful, well-connected half-sisters. So he insisted on Vanessa dressing up and coming out with him. And then when Vanessa threw a strop and wouldn't do it anymore, he turned his attention to Virginia. And what was expected of her and Vanessa, actually, is that they would come down beautifully presented in the evening and either go out or receive at home and that they would be pretty and charming and speak just enough about the right things. And Virginia couldn't do either of those things. Virginia had this singularity about her. She also had quite a low income. So it was quite hard to turn herself out in the way that was expected. And she thought she'd found a brilliant solution, which was to buy some upholstery material, which was cheaper and have it made up into a dress, which I think is great. It's the kind of thing I'd think to do, which is what, you know, I... Well, yeah. really drew me to this story. So she she put it on. She came downstairs to be inspected by George. And he looked her up and down and said, take that off and burn it. <laughs> and not only did she not burn it, she described him in, you know, very, very, um, what's the word? Uh, <laughs> derogatory terms years later. So I think in the end she won. But there's another story she tells from, from the same time. If he takes her to see Lady Someone or the Duchess of Someone or the Honourable Somebody. And she starts talking very enthusiastically about passion and pl- platonic friendship between men and women. And there's this awkward silence and this all, all, almost this sense of glasses breaking and, and cutlery being dropped. Mm. And afterwards, he says to her, they're not used to girls saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> I I just related so strongly to those stories. Me too, know, yeah. That sense of like bodily rebellion against wearing the right kind of dress and the incomprehension that there could be a wrong kind of dress, you know. Yes, and also the incomprehension that why wouldn't you want to talk about this really interesting thing? Yeah, I still have that incomprehension. Why are you looking at me like that? Yeah, I'll always have that. <laughs> and it, But also those environments that we've all ended up in where it seems like the rules are designed to catch you out, like they're not stated, they're not possible to follow. And you, of course, come a cropper somehow because yes. how would you not? You know? <laughs> yeah, it was so, I guess I didn't really understand that she wasn't a complete insider, right? She always seemed like a insider mm. to that very kind of posh world to me. And, and I could see suddenly how she wasn't. Well, she's a very complex figure. She's just both a well-connected, privileged, upper-middle-class woman mm. and a woman who was weird and not of her place and in some respects not of her time. Yeah. And also who, you know, ultimately the weight of that strangeness in the world overtook her at, at the end of her life. Um, it did, and I, yes. That seems to be what we all most know about her, actually. that That's the kind of, I don't know, the, the sort of iconic gesture. Well, we know she was in pain. It could, you know, however yeah. privileged you know she was, mm. we know she was in pain because of the way it ended. Yeah. And, it's, and I think it's such a an image that she created in her own suicide, actually. Um, yes. She created something enduring that sticks in, in our imaginations. Yes. She also wrote very well about awkwardness. And I've sort of tried to rescue the character of, I've totally forgotten her name, Doris Kilman mm. in Mrs. Dalloway, who's sometimes just seen as a sort of victim of Virginia's snobbishness but actually I I think she holds Virginia's sense of awkwardness and humiliation Mm, because I don't think you could write about I think I say I don't see how she could have written about that from the inside without experiencing it yeah yeah and and I think once you break the assumption that Virginia Woolf is the ultimate insider you realize how often she's writing about outsiders and I mean you know Septimus struggling with his what we'd now call PTSD. Her books are full, and, her, and particularly her stories, actually, I think, are full of these. Oh, yes, like Lapin and Lapin Over and mm. so on. And the, the the dress, there's a story I didn't have a chance to sort of reference in the book. I reference it in an article called, called The Dress about a woman going to a party and the horror of realising she's wearing completely the wrong dress. <laughs> and she, so she experiences herself like a fly in a saucer. 
the fact that she's wearing the wrong dress makes her feel like a fly that's dying in a sauce. <laughs> do you, I mean, do you ever feel like you're in the right dress? Because I don't think I've ever left the house and felt like I've worn the right, right thing, particularly in public. <laughs> Sometimes I do because you nail it great. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but because there's a certain kind of you know middle class white Cambridge woman white stuff and <laughs> oh god uh, well other brand names that um that, that I can dress up as quite easily. I see. Uh, but I'm aware that it both is and isn't a disguise. As a young woman, I got it wrong constantly. I could not do young womanhood. I, I, I do middle-aged Cambridge womanhood quite convincingly, but <laughs> young womanhood I could not do. I was I was much better at it when I was younger. I, I used to be really into vintage clothes and like 40s and 50s vintage clothes. Mm. And I, like that gave me a way to construct something that was historically accurate and therefore complete in and of itself you know <laughs> like it was something I could do and I you know like you get older and it, it's I mean it was but also those clothes were really uncomfortable quite often mm. and it's really interesting to me that I endured that in favour of producing something that was consistent and understandable <laughs> to me. I'm just thinking about you know clothes as the equivalent of conversation mm. and sometimes clothes are making a statement and sometimes they're monologuing and sometimes they're saying the same thing as everyone else yeah and sometimes they're not and they're not meant to Mm. but sometimes when your clothes aren't saying the same as everyone else's people don't know to say what to say to you just as they don't know what to say to you if you go to a dinner party and start talking about platonic love between men and women (laughs) (laughs) it's actually making a lot of the same statements I think it is it it, it is yes (laughs) but I, I remember this terrible terrible moment when I was in the sixth form and I was a school prefect and we had to do all the kind of ushering at the church services and things like that we'd all walk down the hill for um we got a really lovely badge though which made it all worthwhile for me (laughs) um I loved the badge (laughs) but I I remember I'd I'd turned up in this kind of crimpling suit it was 60s early 60s crimpling Mm. dress and matching jacket I was so pleased with that I bought it in a charity shop sounds lovely it was lovely, blue crimpling, perfect, gorgeous, gorgeous, nice little matching handbag. Now, however, <laughs> um, I was being really bullied at the time by some girls in that school. They'd been incredibly mean to me. Mm. And as I was ushering people into the front row of the church service, um, the annual leavers church service, one of the girls walked up to me and just whispered in my ear, that's my nan's suit. She died a few weeks ago and we donated it to charity. And I... Oh, Oh, I love where you said fudge. Thank you for <laughs> 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 podcast listeners. <laughs> and I still don't know to this day whether that was true or not. You know, like I, I couldn't. The, one of the agonies of that moment was that I couldn't read it. Like as a, but it doesn't matter whether it was true or not. She didn't oh, say it because it was true. She said it because she knew it would cause you pain. Yeah. Absolutely. So so you got, got the meaning loud and clear. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You couldn't miss the meaning. You know, like, because I was kind of probably one of the poorest kids in that school. Um, and it, it unpacked, the, one of the meanings it unpacked was that it was evident to her that I was buying clothes from a charity shop and that that was not okay as far mm. as they were concerned. You were ahead of your time with that. I know, I know, <laughs> it's so funny. But that you know, they were all like in ben, like Benetton sweatshirts. Of course the they were. Time, or Calvin Klein or like that was the... Kukai, was, was there the Kukai thing. when you were at school? Yes, there yeah. was, I mean there was all sorts of like people's words on their t-shirt which I never really thought. I've never understood that, I've never understood why you would want to give free advertising to the place you give your clothes from but a lot of people seem yeah. very, the word that's on their clothes is more important than the clothes, I've never got the clothes, that. Because they were always such plain clothes, like I never, I couldn't see any appeal to the actual clothes, it was, anyway that's just, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's just not us not getting it. <laughs> It's just us not getting it. But uh, it was, yeah, I, I think that Virginia Woolf moment just really brought that particular thing back to me of not only feeling out of place, but it being pointed out to you in the cruelest yeah. possible way, so deliberately. Yes. I mean, my my moment was with that, which I describe in the book, is when I was 14 mm. and I found and still found tights uncomfortable. Yeah. and. I was still wearing white knee socks and then I 
it was made clear to me, not in a remark to my face, but in a remark between people in front of me. And possibly they didn't think I'd even notice, which is worse, that this was funny, Mm. that this was a funny thing that was definitive of me. And Mm. I was so humiliated. That's horrible. Because at that point, until that point, I'd just been thinking about comfort, I think, mostly. Yeah. You know, I lost my innocence at that point. I thought, oh, my goodness, people are looking at my clothes and reading them and judging them. Mm. And then there, there's another bit I, I talk about where actually this is this is probably the analogue of the Virginia Woolf green dress moment. Yeah. Uh, it was a sick form again, you know, the kindest part oh, of one's life. Why do they let us wear our own clothes in sick form? We're just not ready. <laughs> I know. I know we're, we're just not ready for the politics of it. And I was just walking home behind a pair of other girls and they didn't know I was behind them. Uh, I'm absolutely oh. sure they didn't. And one of them was complaining about not getting a boyfriend. And then she said, I don't know what it is. It's not as if I dress like Joanne Lindbergh. Oh, God. Oh, my God. (laughs) And it's not that I don't think about clothes. I thought about them a lot and always do. So, you know, it's a point where if I watch the news on television, I get distracted by what the newsreader's wearing. (laughs) Yeah. But I I mean, I I find that I I can't quite figure out certain outfits that I like I've never been able to figure out sportswear for example no other people wear sportswear and look great in it and look sporty in it I just look awkward in sportswear however I wear it whatever I buy like what is that how do they how do people understand how to wear these things I don't know I I honestly don't know I can never get my hair right I mean I pay quite a lot to have it cut and colored so I, I I'm reassured that um it can't be going below a certain level because the person who does it's really good and that makes me feel better uh, you know I've got this sort of flyaway crinkly Jewish hair and I'm ashamed of it partly because of internalized racism partly because I yeah. feel it marks me out as someone who can't woman because I can't get my hair under control this is not new back to newsreaders newsreader hair yeah I don't want newsreader hair though sorry newsreaders but I like I like my hair to move a little bit more than that I would say yeah <laughs> Yeah, but, but they, they, I, I've really noticed there is a certain way you, you you have to look in order to be in front of a camera. Not that I want to be in front yeah. of one. You've got to yeah. have the right teeth, the right makeup, the right hair, the mm. right dress. You know, you yeah, can't I never have any of those. No, me neither. <laughs> I mean, let's you you brought up your Jewishness, and and I'd love to talk about the weird sister whose Jewishness mm. was part of the cruelty that was visited on her. Can you tell us a bit about her? Yes, this is Adelheid Block. It's really a very, very horrible story. Adelheid was born to a prominent Jewish family in Lake Constance in, uh, I can't remember exactly when, but she was about 30 when she died, so 1910s, I think. Mm. And then as a small child, she had what's sometimes called meningitis and what's sometimes called encephalitis, and it brain damaged her quite severely. Mm. And um, when she's described, she's described as not having much language and not having much control over her behaviour. And she's a she's an intellectually disabled person. And a lot of her uh, symptoms are I mean, obviously she wasn't autistic. She might have been as well. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. Um, they are not dissimilar to the traits that uh, autistic people with higher support needs mm-hmm. have ascribed to them. So she went uh, as a teenager into a an asylum. And then in 1939, something horrible happened in Germany. Um, <laughs> Which Nazis... we seem to be as a world busy forgetting, but, you know, that's... <laughs> yes, I mean, the, 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 the other thing we, we forget is it wasn't kind of an isolated thing that grew up in Germany. Because yeah. uh, one of the... They, they were big on, on eugenics, and eugenics are a British invention. Yeah, taken up enthusiastically by the Americans and then imported back to Europe. So, you know, the first people to be sterilized were in, in America. But there were lots of laws by the time the Nazis came in in Europe that allowed for the sterilization of disabled people, people mm. seen as defective. This was not a German invention. So against the background of this, the Nazis come in. And all the uh, asylums, the hospitals, the nursing homes are taken over. And basically the place where um, Adelheid is becomes a kind of research place for looking at degenerative heredity. Mm. So they're very interested in all the families of these people. And they're also interested in making sure they don't breed anymore. So first they sterilise people. 
And then they move into a phase which was called T4 after um, the address it was in, in Tiergarten in Berlin. That was Berlin. The, where their headquarters were. And this was basically the precursor of the Holocaust. It was the slaughtering, the systematic slaughtering of people who were judged as having, and the phrase was, lives unworthy of life. Yeah. This is what's written on Adelheid's report, life unworthy of life and also idiocy. Mm. So I thought there's a causal relationship implied between those two. So I, I, in this chapter, I sort of explore the history of ideas of idiocy or imbecility or amentia or whatever horrible name you want to give to it. Yeah, yeah. And the emergence of eugenics and what it means to be able to speak as opposed to not speak. And what happened to um, poor Adelheid was she was one of the first people gassed. She was taken to Grafenek, which was the first killing centre for adults, because they started with children rather horribly, but then they moved on to murdering adults. And she was taken there and she was gassed in the early 1940s. Yeah. It's the most horrible story. It's a, it's a horrible story on so many levels. And I, I'm really interested in your unpacking of the word idiot, because I mm. like it's a word that comes up so often in casual speech and I don't yeah. think we realise the history of it actually. I think I've stopped using it but it's really hard to do because we use it's it all really the time to do. without yeah. understanding what it means and that it was a word used to push people outside humanity and then physically kill them. Yeah and we've you know like I like I told my son about it after um after reading your book and he started campaigning at school oh, against the word idiot. Oh, yeah, lovely. and he has done ever since. Um, and he, whenever someone uses the word idiot at school, he makes the clear connection between autism and idiot and how, you know, as an autistic person, he would have been labelled that and therefore would have been seen unworthy as unworthy of life. But nevertheless, I think we're all still coming out with it sometimes. It's, it's interesting how we kind of like having that word that's a mm. it's a dark insight into the self isn't it? yes I thought what is I mean you, you you want certainly with many things that are going on at the moment to have a word for something that is uh ignorant or foolish or mm. well I, I, I'll say that something's foolish because that again you know the original term was was natural fool or, or whatever you know yeah. an idiot is he that is a fool natural from his birth but that seems long ago enough and somehow non-clinical enough to use. That was foolish yeah. behaviour. That was a foolish thing to do. That was a foolish policy. <laughs> mm. Mm. That was ill-informed. That was ignorant. I mean, there are lots of things you can call someone. You can just, you, you could say, you, you know, you absolute plank, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there's some really good English ones in particular. I think we're... <laughs> we're yeah, twerp. Like... You know, just call someone a twerp. Uh... I mean, you could go for twat as well. Twat is twat. Twat, twat, twat implies some kind of um, evil intention as well, doesn't it? But oh, do you think so? That's interesting. Also good. I have a friend. Uh, I think I talk uh, Karen Freeborn, who I talk about in the book. Who used to call yeah. me a muppet. You muppet. Muppet. Yeah. And I just and, I, and I'm quite happy to confess to being a muppet. It seems accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and it can be said affectionately as well yes Muppet I think Muppet's a really friendly one <laughs> yeah and, and and for you know those of us on the um who have autism and have and that takes the form of dyspraxia it fits pretty well <laughs> yes I sometimes feel like I move a bit like a Muppet <laughs> like my whole body's like Ooh. yeah yeah me too like like um like someone sort of um withdrawn their controls and I've gone all over the place yes that's right that's right I hate it when other people say that about me but yeah I'm fully aware that that's also true yeah <laughs> I'm just interrupting you for a moment to ask if you'd consider subscribing to my Patreon Friends of the Wintering Sessions get an extended edition of the podcast a day early the chance to put questions to my guests a monthly bonus episode and exclusive discounts on my courses and events. Most of all, you help to keep the podcast running. To find out more, go to patreon.com forward slash Catherine May. Do take a look. Now back to the show. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You know, what kind of uh, what comes out in your book is something that I guess we know already, but that we maybe forget to state, which is this link between othering and uh, cruelty yeah. you know, and, and an infliction of suffering. Um, and yeah. I, I thought that about Katerina Kepler as well. Excuse me. Yes, because one thing that happens is that social death can often precede actual death being murdered, being put outside society being put in an asocial space or a less than human space kind of outside the walls as it were almost. outside the walls yes and Katerina Kepler was the mother of Johannes Kepler the early modern astronomer and mathematician which and we'll come to this is what saved her and she lived in the German town of Leonberg she lived actually not awfully far away from where Adelheid died it's a funny thing yeah, they, there seems to be almost a connection between the two in, in your, an implied connection somehow. Yeah, almost, yes. And she, she was the oldest woman in town. She'd been on her own ever since her husband deserted her. So in a time where femininity was, there were very, well, there always are, but there were overtly strict standards of femininity. You were supposed right. to speak quietly and as little as possible and be sensitive and emotional and weepy, all the things we now ascribe to white womanhood, you know, <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing. And she was not, I mean, she couldn't be because as her son pointed out, she had to take over the business of everything. She had to assert herself in the public realm because there was no one to do it on her behalf. There was no man to be a, to be a proxy as was more approved of. Yeah. And there were also things about her, the way she's described was she was very much not that kind of soft woman. She had mm. opinions. She would state them. If she thought you were wrong, she would correct you. And she was very direct. She was very assertive. She wasn't very aware of, um, I guess, what we now call social cues. Yeah. So she yeah. doesn't seem to have seen if it was not a good time to approach someone. She would just go in there anyway, which I can relate to. And she, <laughs> and one of the things that was said about her in court was she doesn't make eye contact with the jury. That's weird. And I thought, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. her son said, well, my mother doesn't. My mother talks across people and says what she has to say. And I thought, okay, that sounds interesting, very familiar. And mm-hmm. also that she had, a, this woman had a son who was an astronomer and a mathematician. Yep. Yeah. There's that genetic link that we know about with with autism that comes up yes, again. Yes. Yes. So um, she wound up being accused of witchcraft, and there was a very long, drawn out procedure. She was out of town. She was back in town. She was put in prison in irons, and then she was finally there was a final hearing, and it's her son's meticulous notes for this final hearing that we have, which enable us to know who she was and that she had a life and that she existed because she herself was illiterate, as most women were. And he managed, just by being utterly meticulous, to get the charges thrown out. But this was after years of suffering. She died not long yeah. afterwards. She was an elderly woman, and the stress... She was kept in terrible conditions, wasn't she? She was kept in horrible conditions, literally in chains. Yeah. And, I mean, it... Uh, you know, it says something that this influential man w- was what it took to to get her out of it. And even then it wasn't straightforward. No, it wasn't straightforward at all. I mean, it was ex- his exceptional, I think, gifts and his conscientiousness mm. and his determination. And it is a very touching story in a way, because he speaks about her sometimes in a very disparaging way. She obviously drove him absolutely up the wall and see that, <laughs> you know, not even between the lines. You can see it in them. But, you know, he valued her and loved her enough to take all that time out of his life and devote himself to that. And I think that's the lovely aspect of the story. Yeah. And also, you know, what a precise brain can do. Actually, yes. you know, it's the, the moments when those incredibly 
detail oriented brains come into their own when it's unpicking a a case like that. Yes. But I, you know, it's that link, it's, it's that chain reaction that I think is so invisible that, you know, when you and I talk about outsidership and how it feels to be socially rejected, perhaps when we're young, you know, perhaps we are more in the centre of things now. Yes. Um, but that, that kind of chain reaction between that and a threat to your life, which actually seems far-fetched but isn't like we know that at times of war at times of civil unrest at times of big social change that the outsiders are suddenly at huge huge risk yeah well um, you, yeah tell, and that, and it tell me about it being Jewish right now well exactly that I mean it, exactly that and I you know I think uh, oh, I don't know that's what we see all over the world as soon as life becomes fidgety yes and, and I think I talk about in the Adelheid book and the, 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 there's a word necropolitics, mm. uh, the politics of death, who gets to live, who gets to die. And sometimes you see them played out very literally as in Nazi Germany. And sometimes you see them played out more insidiously as in only people with underlying conditions died few. Mm. You know, well, and, who, and quite overtly yeah. for autistic people at the beginning of the pandemic when some NHS trusts put blanket do not resuscitate signs yes on exactly stick people yes and people with, with intellectual disabilities yeah yeah because we have lives unworthy of life by definition yeah and suddenly oh it just make, makes you shudder doesn't it it does make you shudder because in an age when you know we've all been we've all been pursuing this identity and it's been so helpful to us to come to that understanding uh, you know, and, and and we've been seeking out that label, and we found and, each other, and we found each other, and it's been life giving, and so mm. uh, it's been everything to me. It's been survival to me to understand autistic, <laughs> and I. But it could also it suddenly made me remember how risky it is to also do that. It's not. Yeah, I mean, I don't always declare myself. No. I mean, certainly if I go into a medical setting, I don't think it's on my records. I don't know. But I don't mm. always mention it. No. And that's a shame, really. Well, yeah. I mean, not, I mean, not, not in the current situation. The current situation, if you're able, sometimes masking is about survival. The massive privilege of masking, honestly. I'm the nice. massive, massive pri- privilege of masking. But yeah. also it means you have to suppress parts of you. Completely. Yeah. And you can't, you know, you can't actually communicate your experience because you're using a language designed not to give away how your experience makes you one of them. Absolutely. And I, uh, we, we, we are engaged in that dance all the time. You know, every time we need to access some form of help. And whenever I've disclosed, I think I've rarely had a good outcome, except I was telling you, wasn't I? Because we, we talk on WhatsApp sometimes and I was telling you that in my recent visit to Sweden, I went to uh, take part in a podcast and the host said, oh, you're autistic. Should I turn that overhead light off? And I it, I almost welled up with the consideration because, mm. you know, genuinely, I don't think most people would know that fluorescent light is such an issue for loads of autistic people. Mm. But also, I wouldn't, I'm so used to just dealing with the fluorescent light like I, you know in my own home yeah. I have all the lights low but when I'm out I get used to just dealing with it and I don't even notice I'm not too bad with light but I'm very sensitive to noise and right. I, I, I was in a big dining room yesterday it was very echoey and I suddenly realized I thought I don't just want to know this hurts me this is hurting my ears to be in this room mm. and I almost wished I hadn't allowed that into my consciousness because it then became yes. very hard to stay in there and you realize how much you suppress how much so physical much. discomfort and emotional discomfort and fear and confusion mm. and pain you are pushing down all the time. And it feels almost dangerous to acknowledge it. Yeah. And then you wonder why you're exhausted when you get home. And it's because you've all been... of that. Yeah. And all yeah. the, you know, uh, conscious reading of the people around you that you've, that, I mean, I've done it for so long that it is second nature, but it's mm. still involving an effort in my brain that I assume most people don't have to do. And it's exhausting. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think of it as as room. I call it my room dyslexia. <laughs> so it takes me. I can read the room, but it takes me longer. It takes me an effort, and I'm tired afterwards. Yes, 
and if it's noisy and if it's if people are standing close to me or it's hot then I am significantly less likely to be able to actually do that reading to be honest and I will spend the next 12 hours replaying it moment by moment in my mind over and over again to the point of absolute insanity yeah me too yeah we need to to begin to think about closing this but I I wanted to ask really about the way that you intertwine your own story with the story of these different women what did it mean to you to make that deliberate connection and to to actually speak to them directly and, and kind of share your story with them it feels like an intimate conversation in places the book well I wanted that that intimacy it's it's a book about connection it's not it's not a book that's making a psychological assertion about someone Mm. it's a book that it's expressing a sense of connection and bringing people into the fold and making your fold bigger and I didn't want to write about them or I didn't want to write for them I was especially aware with Adelheid that when you've got someone who's non-speaking then the temptation is to speak for them. And actually, um, maybe I'm being very little. People, people ad- I mean, don't get me wrong, people advocate wonderfully yeah. for their relatives and for their clients who can't speak. You know, there are people doing a wonderful, loving job out there. Mm-hmm. But what you can't do is speak for that person. Yeah. So I thought I can speak to you, though. Yeah. And I can give this letter to you as a gift and what you do with it and whether you can do anything is with you but I am it's an expression of solidarity it brings us back to the mm. beginning I think yeah. and also I was very influenced I should say by a book by Georgina Klee called Blind Rage it's a brilliant book uh she's a blind American scholar right among other things well she's among other among other things she's she's legally blind <laughs> And started to go legally blind as a child. And Blind Rage is a series of letters to Helen Keller. And it's partly right. a biography of Helen Keller. It's partly about Georgina's own experience. It's partly a reckoning with the figure of Helen Keller, who was held up as kind of, you know, patron saint of deaf blind people. This is how to be a good disabled. Yes. Um, actually, I'm, you know, what watching the film about Helen Keller is, I think, one of my first brushes with under you know like a, a discourse about disability as a child mm. like it's, an, it's an early informational text that goes out there to say yeah. like this is and how you give, should do it yeah and, <laughs> and it's given us something to overcome mm. she wasn't human now she is yes is the yes, kind of message so of the story mm. uh, I mean she, she was actually a very sort of complex figure and far more interesting than the sort of saint that's been created out of her yeah but um Georgina writes to her because she is reckoning with her. And the other thing is, and I think I said this in the letter to the reader, which is the only letter to the reader. I was thinking about how, you know what, I'm not masking. I'm not adjusting myself for you. This is not yet another book of me explaining myself to you. Screw that. Yes. I'm going to have a chat with my friends over here and you can listen, mm. but you can come to where we are. Yeah. Which is, again, more liberating than it should be but definitely liberating. I know. I mean, I, I was thinking analogously of, I, I was thinking of Beyonce's album Lemonade. And I don't, and, and I don't understand. Few people all. would compare you to Beyonce. I, well, I, well, well, I wouldn't compare myself to Beyonce. I, I wish in so many ways. But I was listening to Lemonade and it was, there are bits of it I don't understand, but that's okay because it's not addressed to me. Yeah. I can listen if, if I like, and I'm grateful for the, for the privilege of listening. But yeah. I have no right to demand that it's completely um, accessible that it's to it's made me. into a text for you. Rather exactly. Than, it is yeah. not a text for me. Yeah. And that's so hard, I think, culturally. that I think that's part of this cultural moment we're in, that we're mm. finding very hard, is that not everything is for you as the, you know, imagined kind of like default person white yeah viewer. yeah like which has become the default that the we the cultural we is the kind of white middle class across loads of different societies yeah and I'm I mean and, and you you as well are in the strange space of both being the cultural mm. we and yes. not being it yeah so we know both what it's like to not realize that we're centering ourselves mm. and we also know what it's like to be in different contexts to not be in the centre, to be the they instead of the we. Yeah, Because this is how I explain it. I say, who is who is the we and who is the us here and who is the they? And if someone's the they, like the most vulnerable in our society, they're always the they, you've got a problem. Yeah. It's so interesting being invited into the sort of 
multicultural centre, having not been in it before, because even then I often come out feeling spoken over about my own experiences you know so where I'm asked about my autism the reply is often telling me back about how I should conceive of it rather than simply absorbing what I have said about it (laughs) and I think the 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 success of wintering no it was a brilliant book but also a lot of people a lot of non-autistic people Mm. wider people felt they could identify with it Yes. So I'm sure you've thought about this a lot, but but then they've got to try and negotiate with the fact that you're like them, but not like them. Well, yes and no, because actually I find that a lot of people just skip over that information. I mean, I, I kind of drop it in in the first few pages of the book, but mm. I don't go into. That's know. what I that's what I figured they'd do. It's like we yeah, don't they really want to think it. about the implications yeah. of that. <laughs> yes, that's right. Or, of course, I mean, it, you know, like the human mind is profoundly confabulatory. It will make up a story. To f- it is. I mean, what I, I think I find so impressive about wintering is it's something I don't think I could do, which is put myself in a place where most people could identify with me. I'm such a committed mm. weirdo, for better or worse. <laughs> and I don't think it makes you less weird or less autistic or less unique. <laughs> Just somehow you've managed to find a bridge. <laughs> Yeah, but that, you know, that bridge really surprises me because actually I feel like I wrote a book about the kind of gloomiest, weirdest part of myself, you Mm. know, all the bits that are normally, you know, all the bits that have attracted that comment that we talked about Mm. at the beginning before, like, why don't you want to be like everyone else? Why do you Mm. have to dwell on these things? Why are you obsessed with death and, you know, that kind of thing? Like, that book is full of all that stuff, honestly. But one thing that you, you, you realise is that even people who, you know, are totally at the centre, in a way they don't think about, mm. they also have moments where they think about themselves as outsiders. Yes. Or there are always bits of themselves that they have to leave outside the circle because they don't fit in order to... Yeah. Like like when David Bowie died. Now, you can't have that many people who were really that weird and only <laughs> no. ever identified with David Bowie. I mean, I'm sorry, but speaking as someone who has always been weird and can't help but be weird, if you can put weird on and off, you're not weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're like weird, weird like a stick of rock all the way through. Or you're, exactly. You know. <laughs> exactly. Or you're cosplaying weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of cosplaying weird. But, you know, like... I in my own world I don't feel weird at all I feel like everyone else is weird so while I always feel like an outsider I also feel like my centre is the truth you know in in that very arrogant human way like I I find other people's willingness to like obey social norms and, and wanting to be part of a pack and you know, wanting to look the same in those Benetton sweaters or whatever it is. Um, yeah. I find that weird. Like, for I, me, that's I weird. I find it weird too, but also I so I think I've really successfully internalised a lot of shame and fear mm. about not being part of it. So I never feel able to assert most of the time that I'm the one that's got it right. I always know. I always have a yeah. sense where you could be wrong. You could be completely wrong. Yeah. And it's it's yeah, this permanent, I'm never, what's the word? I, I, I mean, the, the phrase that's coming to my head is I'm never quite in my skin. Maybe that'll do. Mm. Yeah, you're always conscious of wearing whatever it is you're wearing at that yeah. moment and how exactly. contingent that is on. And it might be wrong. You might else. have put on, you know, the wrong face today. Mm, thank you, Joanne. That was just such a great conversation about weeds. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's always great to talk to you. <laughs> I know, I know. It's lovely to talk, and I, it, I could, it, I could unpack outsidership forever, actually, because I think it's this huge and complex experience. Mm. That... And I think, and I wouldn't say it's not something everyone experiences because it's contextual. So almost yeah. everyone will have experienced it at some point. Mm. I think yeah. that's, if, yeah. if there's a bridge, that's the bridge. Yeah, that's kind of lovely, isn't it? That's an optimistic note to end on that maybe. I think so. Let's end on an optimistic note. Yeah, we need, we need optimistic we need notes. More optimism. <laughs> more weirdness, more optimism. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you bought what we needed today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's because I've made it a little bit further along the coast as I've been walking and talking to you. 
or if the sea has genuinely calmed down, but you can hear probably the much more serene quality of the sea at this point on the path. It's just lapping up gently against the seawall. I always think a lot about the smell of the sea. Loads of people hate it. I love it. I love the smell of the sea. It is today intensely green. It's like the smell of the roots of flowers when you pull them out of a vase. Hopefully before they've gone slimy. (laughs) Maybe that's why people don't love it. I'm beginning to understand now that this might be my particular thing. It's funny because as I'm walking along here, I'm feeling strange all over again. I'm sort of turning my back from the people who ride past on their bikes because I'm, you know, talking into a big furry microphone. It's weird, isn't it? It's a weird thing to do. But so many of the things worth doing are weird and they do make you appear to be weird. I think a lot about how the progress of my life and all the best things that have come to me are from leaning into weirdness rather than trying to hide it. I think, yeah, I think Joanne's completely right that reclaiming weird is our birthright. I hope some of you and all of you felt as relieved by that conversation as I did. Do you know what? As I carry on through life, I understand more and more that everybody feels like an outsider in one way or another. I don't know anyone who genuinely feels like an insider, even the people that look like insiders to me. Everyone's always busy identifying their difference and often feeling sort of challenged and victimised by that. And of course, for loads of people, that victimisation is very real. But I do think it's an interesting exercise to identify the places where our outsidership is, to some extent, chosen and to some extent, a luxurious space where other people don't have control of us. A rebellious space, a creative space, a generative space. I don't want too much insidership. I like it. I like it on the edges here. Just like I like being right on the edge of the sea. I'm walking along a part now where the graffiti artists have taken over. And there's sand up on the path. It feels like this is a liminal space outside of the main constraints of the town. I wouldn't want to be here on my own at night, but here in the daytime, I don't know, it fits. I'm wishing you all a good week after you've listened to this. I wanted to say thank you again to Joanne and to producer Buddy, who I met with for lunch last week and completely failed to get a photo of us together. But he does so much for this podcast and it was great to see him. Everything happens remotely, doesn't it? We don't get to meet in person. And thank you to Megan, our convener. I talked about her role last time. And thank you to the Patreons who... um, just showed me the best time last week when we did a live book surgery on Patreon. Had so much fun talking about the books we love and the books we need at this point in time. I spent ages researching it beforehand as well because I was scared that they would all laugh at me because they're all so knowledgeable. So it was good. It was good for me. (laughs) And I'll see you all again really soon. I've got some amazing guests coming up for you. And if you want the chance to feed in questions to them, I'll ask 
after I've done the main interview, then do join the Patreon. My patrons were enjoying a really good extended episode this time, and you could too, and it really, really helps to keep us afloat. Thank you, everyone. I'll see you soon. Bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.